Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. I will let my guest introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Pamela Esposito Amory, and I'm from Tell Every Amazing Lady About Ovarian Cancer, Louisa M. McGregor Ovarian Cancer Foundation, and we're also known as Teal. It's a very long name, so you can just call us Teal or Tell Every Amazing Lady. Awesome. So where are you from? Born and raised in Brooklyn. Brooklyn girl. What, uh, how did you get involved with Teal? So when my sister Louisa was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, um, we took something really negative and made something positive, and it's that simple. So it really started, that's kind of where our story began. She was in the hospital um, getting through one of her first of many surgeries, and to kind of motivate her and be the cheerleader that I thought was my role as her sister was, hey, when we get out of the hospital, you know, at some point, let's do one of those cancer walks. There must be some ovarian cancer walk. Let's do it together. So that was just something that we kind of talked about. And when it came time to look for it, we couldn't find one. There was no ovarian cancer specific walk just for this disease for what she was looking for. She also couldn't find things like a specific support group for someone else to talk to who had this disease. And the list sort of goes on. So we started um, really how her needs were, that things that she was looking for, and we started a walk, and that's the roots to where we started. That's first teal walk in Prospect Park, Brooklyn, and it really grew from there. What year was that? 2009. 2009. She was diagnosed in 07. By the time we finally got it, uh, an actual physical event was 2009. Well, it's definitely commendable to, to no doubt. Um, and I'm sure, as with myself and, and clearly you, a lot of people are... I would probably venture to say everybody at some point in their life is affected by cancer, whether personally uh, having and fighting cancer or having a loved one battle cancer. Um, There are, you know, any aspect part of the body, there's a specific cancer for it. So what kind of obstacles did you run into trying to establish teal? Oh, tons. <laughs> but so, so many obstacles, but so many amazing, amazing moments that just kept telling us this is the right thing we were doing. Right. So as hard as those challenges were and as many roadblocks went up front of us from, you know, funding, we had no money, no one was getting paid to do any of this stuff. And right. we just had to improvise and figure it out to, you know, never running a nonprofit before, but figuring it out, you know, so much paperwork, so much law and legal stuff that we had to figure out and ask all the experts. Um, but we had an incredible amount of volunteers come forward and say, what can I do to help? I'm in this, you know, what do you need? And I mean, people just bending over backwards to support us in any way, shape or form and families and people who've been impacted before us coming to us and saying, finally, someone's doing something about this. Yeah, I'm in, what can we do here? So it was just, I mean, especially the first couple of years, I just remember we were sort of pinching ourselves and saying, you know, we have a renewed faith in humanity of just look at all these people just coming together and, and making our foundation with us. We didn't do it alone at all. Right. Uh, and like you said, you, when she was battling, she, there was people that she wanted to talk to this, get their experiences and kind of get an idea what to expect in the future and, and come up with other ideas of, of mitigating, you know, the illnesses that come with the treatments and things like that. 
outside of you and your family, what has been the biggest source of assistance? I mean, generally just volunteers, but it's been, it started with friends and family and then just continue to grow from there. And it's our, our really, um, best marketing has always been word of mouth. People just telling someone, you know, and that's in our name too. tell every amazing lady. So it works. Right. So they would tell someone the message and pass it on. And that's where the volunteers came in. But then it started to grow into schools and, um, you know, college kids who needed school credit and a girl scout club and, you know, the boy scouts and a whole school would then participate and it just grew and grew from there. So, you know, the people involved in what we do and a lot of times, there were families and survivors impacted too. So then the whole family, not only those fighting it, but those who experienced loss and needed to grieve with us and be a part of this uh, community that we were building. So it really became a, a, a true community of um, people impacted by ovarian cancer. That's outstanding. Before we kind of get into what ovarian cancer is and things like that, what type of, um, I guess, outreach do you guys typically do aside from the walk? Um, so our, the walk was really how we first started the first couple of years. And then it just sort of, um, expanded in a big way from there. And it was part of our vision. So, um, when Louisa and I started this out, we first knew we wanted to make the first walk in Brooklyn. So that's where we started prospect park. You know, it's, it's our home in Brooklyn. Let's get this going. And when we saw how successful it was, we literally visualized together and we would, you know, kind of close our eyes and imagine that it was going to be in other cities of the United States. And years later that did happen. We grew, we got satellite walks and we're still in other cities and States. But one of the main things that I continue to have as a vision, I always felt strongly about the programs that she needed. Um, and she did lose her battle a couple of years into all the work that we were doing. But the thing that always stuck with me which she helped us build our mission were the three things she was looking for. And it's awareness, survivor, and medical uh, research. So those are our three pillars of our programs. So I was stuck to the programs and I wanted to see a community center. I wanted to see the, the marketing and to answer your question and the outreach to not just be about this one event and this one walk, even if we're infiltrating all these different cities across the country, it's really true and true about the program. So our marketing affects everybody, the general public to learn about this disease, the survivors and their families and caregivers to have support that they need and the resources that they need. And so our, our um, outreach is all across the United States. We, um, our programs are, are, you know, endless to our capabilities, whatever we can, you know, uh, pull off with our resources. Um, and so we'll do things from, you know, extreme that we've opened up the stock exchange, we've uh, opened up and closed the NASDAQ and done some really global, amazing outreach, um, you know, with some things like that, all the way down to we're in a church basement or, you know, a school health fair, and we're just doing, you know, things in a, on a grassroots level as well. Right. I think it's, as I said before, insanely commendable for you guys to create this place of comfort for people who are going through pretty catastrophic thing and it's it's not just as i said before the patient that needs help and someone to vent to but it's it's the caretakers it's the family members you mm -hmm. know everybody's affected by cancer in some way shape or form so without getting too medically defined what exactly is ovarian cancer for the layperson sure um so ovarian cancer if i was to sum it up is a disease that 
is very hard to detect and diagnose that is not talked about enough and primarily starts in the ovaries, but there are some studies that say that it could start in the fallopian tubes. And so what happens is most doctors' visits, no one looks at anyone's ovaries, and so by the time it's caught, it's usually late because they're not even getting looked at. There's no test. Um, so ovarian cancer used to be called the silent killer, but it does have signs and symptoms. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. Speaking of them, what are some of the more prevalent signs and symptoms? Sure. So the problem with ovarian cancer is the symptoms are really vague and they sound like they could be something else. Um, they can mimic themselves as, you know, a gastrointestinal problem or something else that, um, you know, you can blow off like back pain. You know, once in a while, someone, a lot of many survivors say like, oh, I thought it was an old back injury. My sister thought that she had an old back injury and she had a lot of back pain and she just kept saying, I guess that thing is back. Um, unexplained uh, weight loss or weight gain Women's weight fluctuate all the time. Maybe your diet change. So the point is, I'll give you more, more of those in a minute, but the point is when there's no particular reason for it and it lasts more than two weeks, a doctor really needs to be seen. And the problem is the doctors don't have a screening test. So we really need to listen to our bodies. Um, some of the other symptoms are uh, frequent urination, shortness of breath some people actually get, pelvic pain, um, uh, abdominal pain, and changes in all types of gastrointestinal uh, issues. So, you know, these changes, and bloating is a big one too. I mean, a lot of women get bloating once a month. You know, it's something that, you know, they might have had a plate of nachos and they get bloated. We're not talking about that kind of bloating. Right. It's when it's, you know, Persistent. two weeks straight and that bloating won't go away and you can't quite figure out what's going on, get yourself to the doctor. There's, there's something going on in your body, and maybe it's not ovarian cancer, but something's happening where you need to see a doctor. Yeah. How do they, I guess, assess or, or diagnose this? Yeah, that's the hard part. So I'll give you two examples, and, and I will say I'm, I'm not a doctor and I'm not giving out any medical advice, but ovarian cancer is usually officially diagnosed in surgery, anatomically where someone's ovaries are. It's very hard to get to them. So the true diagnosis is usually in surgery, but... Um, there is, uh, there's three tests that someone like myself, high risk, I've got family history, three things that I might want to do on a regular basis, but remember that it could absolutely still be missed. Right. There's a blood test. The blood test is called CA125. It could completely miss it, and it could also find other things. So it's not that reliable, but it's something. Um, the transvaginal ultrasound is something that is pretty common especially for someone at high risk, it could maybe see a cyst, but all cysts are not cancer. So we don't want to make everyone worried if they have a cyst. Cysts are very common, and they can also be benign and completely fine. And then there's something called the vaginal rectal pelvic exam. Those three exams, if someone is really worried about this, they should ask their doctor for those tests. But again, all three of them can still miss this disease because it just doesn't have a perfect screening test. But it's something where, where you know, as myself with high risk, it's some of the things that I ask my doctor for. Just going over some of the, the early warning signs that you had gone over, I, I think the biggest concern or one of the bigger concerns that a doctor might have is saying, hey, you have something, and not being able to give a, a pointed answer, that, that's always going to be concerning because anybody that's, that's been to a doctor that had, and the doctor says, well, good news, bad news, we see something, but we're not quite sure what it is, you know, mm -hmm. everybody always immediately reverts back to, oh, my God, it's cancer. And because there isn't a cure for cancer. Um, it's, it's one of those things that it's in the back of your head always. And it's probably one of the most scariest things that anybody can 
have to battle at some point. Um, where would you like to see, or where do you think from your experience and, and dealing with this, where do you think some of the money should be going to research? Like what, what things should be, should be researched to more effectively find, um, better diagnostics and things like that? But definitely a screening test. I mean, our we do have a medical program, and it's uh, basically some of our fundraising goes there, like the three points I was saying before. We have the survivor program, the awareness program, and the medical research program. So we do have medical doctors on our advisory board. We do fund medical research. And some of the areas that we as a board try to stick to, or as a foundation as well, is a screening test. We ultimately need a screening test. I mean, look at what it's done for breast cancer, having a mammogram. Look at what we've done for colon cancer, having a colonoscopy. We need something for ovarian cancer. The other areas that we um, contribute our medical funding research money to is prolonging the life to the survivor. There's still, um, you know, just there needs to be better treatment options. Sometimes they're, you know, they're not right for everybody. And just like any cancer, we just need better treatment to prolong their life. And Listen, when I first started doing this over 13 years ago, um, things were pretty grim and they've gotten a little more exciting in the medical world. There is a little bit more hope and better options out there than there were that many years ago. And it is getting better, but there's just not enough being done. And then thirdly, the other area for medical research that um, I'm very uh, uh, passionate about is genetics and genetic testing, because there is some information there that can really um, continue to save a life and save generations of family lives as well. So we really need a screening test and we really need the families to understand their history, their family history and the science behind that, um, where, you know, prophylactic surgery can actually help save lives as well. Just going over some of the numbers that you guys have on your website, there's an average of about 200,000 new cases a year. And of that, about 62 and a half percent of that ends up in ultimately in in death of the you know, the victim, which is, uh, that's an insane number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's obviously it's devastating, not just for the, the, they see that number, but devastating for all the families that are involved. Um, I, I guess one of the bright spots that I saw in your, in the numbers you have is if you can detect it early, you know, the survival rate is, is about 93%, which is fantastic to hear. Uh, and it gives you that, that hope you guys are looking for. But conversely, the late stage detection, which I'm guessing is where where do you normally typically say that late stage falls into? Any stage in three and four is pretty average for ovarian cancer. It's rare that it's one or two. Got it. I mean, that's you're, you're not even fifty percent chance to live more than five years. You know, you you mentioned that you guys like to put money towards research and, and treatments. My understanding with with cancer, your choice is really just chemo. The question is what type of chemotherapy you're doing, whether it's a chemical, whether it's a um, radiation. Uh, what was the mm-hmm. one that my mother had? Um, it's like immuno- IP therapy. Yeah, immunotherapy. Immunotherapy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I just recently lost my mother uh, a few months back to lung cancer. Um, and knowing her fight and the things that kind of progressed with her, it's infuriating that with all the money that goes into research and how advanced medical research has become. I mean, I think over the last year we've, we've seen how far medical research has come with how quick the vaccine came out. Um, it's a little frustrating that they can't, 
be a little better with treatment options for cancer and and obviously there's hundreds of different types of cancer but aside from the patient aspect and and healing from that aspect what types of services do you guys provide for the families and the victims as far as non-medical absolutely well first of all condolences about your mom and um, I, immunotherapy is one of the areas I just want to say has um, brought a really nice light at the end of the tunnel, if I could say that, about cancer. It's been really exciting. It's changing the face of many different cancers. Um, I know even President Carter had it, and he's he's doing great. So it's, it's helping certain cancers. So we just need to keep hoping for more science like that. Um, to answer your question about the services we have, um, it's – really for the entire family and the general public. So I'll give some examples where one of the things in particular since the pandemic hit that we've seen an increase on and and we needed to keep up with was actually um, things like mental health and wellness for everybody and and helping with anxiety. We had survivors and patients stuck at home and trapped inside, you know, alone who were really panicked about, wait a second, I can't get my PET scan or my CAT scan or they're not letting me in the hospital for my chemotherapy. And I mean, anxiety was through the roof. So besides patients, even the general public, I mean, we all could use it, right? It was crazy time. It still is. So we offer things like free meditation. We actually do that once a week for anybody who's interested on Wednesday mornings. It's every Wednesday. You can sign up on our website, absolutely free. Um, all of our programs are free when we we're actually actually sitting in my community center right now. And we've had uh, up until the pandemic, many in-person things like art therapy. We've done jewelry making where, you know, the whole family can come out and be a part of that. Um, it really creates these uh, communities of people who've been impacted. The caregiver can come, the general public and survivors as well. We do tons of survivor socials and meetups and try to connect the survivors with each other. Um, a lot of our in-person events, they're so excited to see each other. And um, over Zoom, we've definitely expanded those kind of options too. But um, generally speaking, those are sort of the uh, activities throughout the month that we have. But really, it's also, you know, the random phone call or the services that a survivor or their family needs. They'll reach out to us. And, you know, if we don't have the service, we'll also refer them to a place so that they get the help, whatever they're needed. It could be anything from a wig to financial help to, you know, they just want to talk to their family about a diagnosis, You have, whatever you have it. So we are still a relatively small foundation, but we operate nationwide. And, you know, sometimes there's things we can't offer and we'll connect them with the right people. Right. I think that it's nice. It's always nice to have somebody that you can vent to, uh, you know, a friend, a confidant that you can vent to about anything. But with something that's as nuanced as ovarian cancer, it's nicer to have people that have something parallel to your experience that, you know, they they have perspective that, you know, somebody that hasn't been through it doesn't have. So Mm -hmm. I I think you guys offering services like that is, is spectacular. Thank you. Where would you like to see your community center in the next, you know, five, 10 years or so? Well, I mean, there's so much excitement in, in a lot of different ways. There's, there's so many things that happened during this pandemic where we've had to like reinvent ourselves and keep up with the times. And we, as a foundation are actually really excited in some of the directions that things are going digitally, where we can offer more services to people and reach them, 
you know, further into their homes, um, you know, across the nation. We actually, one of the other services um, that we do is uh, when a woman is diagnosed, she can join our membership kit. So we send out things like chemotherapy kits and birthday kits and membership kits. And these are just these little, you know, kits and boxes that go to their home, but it makes them remember that we're there for them. And we offer all these um, additional services on top of that. So, um, you know, we're really expanding in that area and we can only do that with donations and funding. And we actually have a um, Save Our Programs campaign for the end of our year right now because the pandemic, um, especially in 2021, has been really tough on us. A lot of our outdoor um, fundraising activities um, and indoors were canceled and we weren't able to pull them off. So a lot of our fundraising declined. So those services and over the next five years, um, we've had to really rethink our events, our activities, our programs, everything, just right. like many businesses. Um, and most of it is transitioning um, online. And those tools, you know, have wellness attached to them, like the meditations we're doing per week. Um, but of course, still holding true to who we are and where our roots are with our community center. And people do definitely know us for our teal walk. So we're really excited to get it back up and running next year in 2022. And we've got lots of events planned uh, for next year to try to bring everybody together. It's awesome. Is there a, an age that it's kind of more prevalently detected at, or does it kind of span? Cause I'm just kind of curious, like when, when do you, do you start talking to girls about this as being a, a possibility I love that question. It's actually one of my favorite, I think. Um, my answer is going to be um, age doesn't matter. Cancer doesn't discriminate. No matter what you read and no matter what they tell you, for as long as I've been doing this, I've seen, unfortunately, 11-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds. I'll never wow. forget the young girls that I've seen. I've also seen an 89-year-old get her first diagnosis. So it does not matter. Um, primarily and statistically, they'll say age over, over 50 is um, a more predominant popular age, but it doesn't matter. You know, you could be one of those, you know, the, the younger ones, unfortunately, um, that it does not matter. But I will say it is one in 75 women have the lifetime risk of getting ovarian cancer. And you compare that to breast cancer, one in eight. One in 75 is not one in a million. So, you know, all of us probably have maybe 75, at least Facebook friends or Instagram followers or what have you. Yeah. So we all know 75 people, unfortunately, one in 75, I, you know, I like to emphasize that number and not an age and just think about all the women that we know in our lives. Yeah. How do you bring awareness to, uh, to people, um, young and old about the ovarian cancer? Yeah, I think we, I feel like we've had to, um, I have to bring up the pandemic cause it changed how we do this. Mm -hmm. It used to be a little bit easier for us where We'd, you know, put a little bit of our dollars behind big marketing campaigns. Like we would take MTA posters and signs and things like that. No one has been on the subways for two years. It's, we can't reach them the way we used to. We light up buildings and monuments and some of those events, people were not really interested in attending because they weren't leaving their home. So, you know, some of the standard things that we do are these big events and um, major PR. That's kind of what we're known for. And we've had to really um, include all the other things, which we have anyway, but we thought them a little bit. So things like, um, you know, mailing out to their home, uh, online marketing, like we've always done, but we're trying to reach them in different ways, but we haven't gone to those health fairs that we used to, or, you know, the smaller scale events, um, 
even in schools, there's, you know, you can't really have visitors in schools where you are trying to cut back all the interactivity because of COVID. So um, traditionally, we do a little bit of everything in person, virtually, um, and a lot of different types of marketing. And um, we're still trying to continue to connect with everybody, but it's been really tough the last two years. Outside of the reinventing the things that you've done in your approach, where might people find more information about specifically about ovarian cancer? Yeah, well, they definitely can visit our website, telleveryamazinglady.org. We have um, a whole page of facts, signs, symptoms, different languages. There's tools and resources for the whole family. Um, there's even a, a genetics quiz to figure out if your family's at risk. We definitely do workshops and webinars on education and things like that where um, if you're interested and still want some more information, anyone can contact us or sign up for some of our workshops where, you know, we can uh, provide information even to a whole company. We've even been doing things like lunch and learn. So if you work for an organization and you want us to educate them, we do a lot of webinars and Zoom meetings to, you know, just provide some of those resources and information. I kind of have to ask, how did Teal become associated with it? Uh, and clearly you've, you've taken that the color and, and use the to your advantage for your marketing. But how did Teal get to be associated with uh, ovarian cancer? Sure. Well, I can't take credit for the color Teal for um, ovarian cancer, like pink for breast cancer. Right. But when my sister was diagnosed and she found out, I, I never knew Teal had anything to do with ovarian cancer. I didn't know anything about ovarian cancer, but she mentioned to me kind of in passing, like, oh, it's the color teal. And then she started getting excited about like, oh, that's a teal shirt. I should start wearing it. So she was starting to get like proud about the color teal and representing. And then when we came time to um, figure out the walk that we were doing, um, we needed a name. And then it started to turn into a foundation. We needed a name. So we sat there one day and sat and, and thought about an acronym. We, you know, we're playing around with the letters T-E-A-L and she said, tell every amazing lady, but she kept going and she kept moving on and coming up with all these other ones. And I'm like, that's it. Stop. We've got it. That's the one. <laughs> so it was really that simple. She gets credit for coming up with Tell Every Amazing Lady, and I can't take credit for any of that. <laughs> well, it works. It was very, very creative with uh, with taking the color and, and working with it. Do you guys have plans of, of expanding and having hubs of your community center in other states? We would love that, but funding is just not there for yeah. us. I mean, long-term... Um, we really need uh, funding to continue doing what we're doing currently. But, you know, growing into different communities, we see the need for it tremendously. I mean, people contact us all the time and, you know, us sending things to their home and trying to engage with them on Zoom and phone calls is sometimes not enough. You know, they need a lot more help and assistance and their communities just don't have the support for ovarian cancer. So we would love to see that. It's just going to take a lot of funding for us. We have volunteers all across the United States, though, who are amazing, and they've been able to help us do fundraisers and spread awareness in their communities. So we're always looking for volunteers, and anyone can help us from, you know, just a small part that you can play even just by telling other people in your community. As a, as a human species, what more could we do to promote your cause? <laughs> mm. Nice way of putting that question. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because my experience, I've, I've seen a lot of cases where just people suck. <laughs> there, there's mm-hmm. no way to put it, people suck. And there's there's people that are out there that are just insanely selfish. There, there's people who are out there who are insanely selfless. And mm-hmm. I think I heard somewhere that Dolly Parton and somebody else, I can't recall who it was, 
they donate insane amount of money and people they do it quietly and just their compassion towards everybody they meet if if six to ten percent of the world had their kind of compassion we would live on a very very different planet um and i think that what you guys offer the services the the human interaction that people need is it goes far and i think it goes farther than people see because people are so used to to going to a doctor the doctor's might not have all the answers that they're that they need or that they want um they're not getting the information that they need or want whether that's what the doctor says or whether it's because it's information they don't want to hear um by and large cancer prognosis if you're told you have cancer you, you don't have a good prognosis um but i think the fact that you're giving people an outlet and you're advocating for people in a very nuanced way that it's clearly needed goes really, really far. I think, and I would love to see our country do a much better job in taking care of its people, um, medically, mentally, in every way. I mean, our country purports to be, a, you know, the greatest country in the world, but we, I think we lack in, in a lot of areas. I, I guess I'll go back to my question. What more could we do as, as humans to, to help you out? Yeah, I think, um, a couple of things come to mind. So our name says a lot, tell every amazing lady. So tell someone about us, tell someone about what you might've heard tonight on the podcast or you saw on our website. Um, so tell every amazing lady can be very powerful because it makes everyone stop for a minute. And maybe the next time you see the color teal, you'll remember to make a doctor's appointment or tell your wife or sister or mother or grandmother, like, Hey, wait a second. I keep hearing you complain about this symptom. I think you should go to the doctor and get it checked out. So that's first and foremost. Um, second is, you know, get involved and be a part of what we're doing. You know, the New York city marathon was just this weekend and we have two runners in the race and they committed themselves to our cause and spread awareness and raised a bunch of money for us and wore our shirt and, you know, got the message out there about this disease. And it's, it's really about, you know, those individuals who take it to the next mile, like you said, and really, you know, help us spread our message and continue to, you know, allow us to have our programs continue. Um, you know, anybody can go to our website and give any kind of donation, a dollar and up, it doesn't matter. Um, we really need that support, especially these days. Like I said, the last two years has been really tough. Um, and really all of us to be more aware, um, especially even at like doctor's appointments and for women's health, sometimes symptoms like this particular disease get blown off a lot and, you know, not really taken so seriously. And so it might take a few doctor's appointments or a second or third opinion for this diagnosis. So I can't stress enough to have women especially listen to their body when they hear something that just doesn't seem right. Um, to really tell someone again, tell every amazing lady and, and talk about it and get it out in the open. This disease is something that also a lot of people don't want to talk about. You know, ovaries is, you know, sometimes maybe sounding like a sensitive subject. subject. It means a lot to different people. Mm -hmm. um, it might be too controversial to somebody. We are, you know, so open to discussing it, talking about it. It's an important women's health issue um, that really needs to be um, more easily uh, educated about. So that's what we're doing. I think that's that's one of the, the stumbling blocks that people might run into is it's a woman's thing and there's no way that a man could relate to that struggle. You know, there, there's components that are <laughs> components. There, there's organs that women have that men don't that 
it leaves them to a variety of other cancers. I mean, there's uterine cancer, vaginal cancer, cervical cancer, ovarian cancer. That's four cancers mm-hmm. that men can't get. There, mm-hmm. There's not much. Th- I don't think there's testicular, testicular cancer that only men can get that women can't. So, again, people, I think, need to, uh, for lack of a better term, grow up when we talk about things like this and know that there's not meant to be any other connotation or other, any other context for the conversation other than medical information and, and awareness and becoming more understanding of the risks and, and the possibilities of, of what can or can't be done. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, th- this is something, this disease has um, a lot of genetic factors to it at times. It's not every case, but some in my family, we did find that there were genes associated with this that we didn't realize. And, and that could be, um, you know, we actually even have programs for men, support groups for men. It affects the whole family. So right. it doesn't matter male, female, just like breast cancer. Men can get breast cancer and we know there are genes there. So ovarian could be prostate cancer in a man or colon cancer in a family. Um, so they're all interconnected. Um, I will say why I bring those up is because, you know, someone having a family history of breast, colon, uh, prostate or endometrial cancer, some of those cancers could increase the risk to ovarian cancer. Um, there could be a gene association and we encourage people to get genetic testing done. I was going to ask is, have, is there a trend that, that you've seen or in the statistics that you've looked over where there's a commonality of, uh, women with ovarian cancer having uterine cancer or one of the other, another form of cancer? Breast and ovarian cancer are very closely linked, unfortunately. So sometimes if someone has breast cancer, they can have a higher risk for ovarian and, and vice versa for, for that disease. But the family history, um, you know, through and through for some of the diseases I just mentioned, like colon cancer as well. Yeah, I, I think people don't take their own health seriously enough. I don't think they, they take enough time to look into their genetics and, and their health, their family's history, as you said. Um, mm-hmm. I think that would go a long way for a lot of people and a lot of the things, not just for cancers, but you know, for heart disease and, and diabetes and, and other medical issues. Mm-hmm. Where can people find or hook up with your organization? So on most social media channels, we are at Teal Walk, T-E-A-L-W-A-L-K. And our main website is TellEveryAmazingLady.org. I will definitely and most absolutely put that into the show notes <laughs> just so Thank people you. can find it easier. Um, I'm going to throw a couple questions at you that are a little random, but leave the, leave the show on a, on a higher note. Would you rather attend a bonfire or a wine tasting? Wine tasting. I don't like the outdoors so much. I'm a city girl. <laughs> I figured that was going to be your answer. I have to go with the, with a the bonfire. There's just nothing like the the crack and the smell of a of a good fire going. Would you rather meet Confucius or Isaac Newton? Confucius, definitely. Um, just I don't know. To me, the words of wisdom that we all can use every day. <laughs> Fair enough. I I. I had to sit and think for this because I, I would love to talk to Confucius, but I think Isaac would have a little bit more of an engaging conversation with me. Not that I would really be able to comprehend anything that he says, <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, let's see. Sour Patch Kids or M&M's? Sour Patch Kids. Just, I definitely always ate them as a kid. Nostalgia. <laughs> I, I agree. Sour Patch. I, I like the flavors other than just chocolate and 
whatever that candy shell is. Um, would you rather be caught wearing socks that don't match or socks with holes in them? Socks that don't match. It could be a fashion statement. <laughs> I, I, I'm a firm believer that life is too short to worry about matching socks. So <laughs> if, if I'm wearing matching socks, you, there might be something wrong at that, that day. <laughs> um, I want to thank you very much. Um, I, I think what you guys are doing is absolutely amazing. Um, I wish you guys nothing but the best, and, and hopefully you can keep growing and saving a lot of lives. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Appreciate it. Um, you know, anything we can do to help to spread the message and, and thank you for having me as a guest. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.